You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Today's passage is a tough one. Um, and so I want to give you a heads up. Uh, I, I don't have any jokes for you today. Um, I don't have any funny stories about my kids. I don't have any presidential impressions. I, all I have for you is a text about your Savior being crucified and humiliated. And my prayer is that this, that, that text alone captivates you. And it can cause you to worship. It can call you to repentance. And I hope that what you see is the pain in the text. But I hope what comes through or out of the pain is you, what you'll be able to see is, is a, uh, a love that you can place your hope in. There are three points today. It is the journey, the humiliation, and the cross. And as a people of prayer, let's go back to him and ask that he use his word to bring conviction. God, we ask you, we come to your throne of grace like you tell us to, and ask that you use your word today to sanctify us, to edify us, to train us up in righteousness. May your word transform us. God, we thank you for all that you've given us. And we thank you that you allow us to come and study and, and mull over your precious word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first point is the journey, and this is verses 21 through 22, and it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. Now, what I want you to see is there's actually two journeys happening here, right? The first is the journey of, of a man named Simon, a North African man, uh, with his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And the second journey is that of Jesus' journey as he's on his way to the place of the skull, Golgotha. Now, the pain of the journey is, is, has been quite clear thus far, right? Christ has already had the crown of thorns twisted on his head. He has already been beaten with a whip, uh, a whip that had these, uh, these metal links, so these metal balls at the end of it to give it weight and to help tear flesh from the body. Needless to say, Jesus allows himself to experience human pain and, and human suffering, human exhaustion, and even physical struggle, so much to the point where he is not able to carry his cross or, or he's moving too slowly for the Roman authorities. And as you can see in verse 21, it states that they compelled a passerby, they being the Romans. And this father, traveling along, was instructed to help carry the cross. Now, this man named Simon, he got to get an up-close look of this journey. He got to see the blood pouring out of the body and the face of Christ. He got to witness the torn frame of Jesus. He got a small taste, a small glimpse into a window of what exactly Jesus was bearing, these Crosses weighed uh, well over 100 pounds. And in this type of execution, it was given, the burden was laid on the one being executed to carry their cross 
truly a true and cruel assignment to someone who's about to die, let alone a king, right? Kings, they're to be escorted. They have a procession. They are kings, oftentimes in the ancient world, were to be carried, and the burden of the king was placed on the backs of the servants. But this king, this king of the Jews, he carries our burden. And this man named Simon, again, sees just a small window into what that burden looked like. The pain of Jesus for him was front and center, and it would change this man's life, and and how could it not? If you would, please put back up verse 21 uh, for me. It says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, this is interesting because the way this is phrased tells us um, uh, something about this family. It, it would be like saying, hey, there's a guy named Simon. You know him, the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's significant because what's assumed here is that, that the reader of the gospel knows Alexander and Rufus. And this means that what the family experiences here changes the course of their life and the course of their eternity. So much that Alexander and Rufus are known to the church. They, they, the readers know who they are. In fact, Rufus is mentioned again in Romans 16 as being a helper in ministry to Paul. And not just Rufus, but Paul says, Rufus, thank you and also thank your mother who's been a mother to me. Now, this journey out of North Africa to Jerusalem changed them in ways they never could have expected. This horrific event, this painful journey of Jesus is met with a casual journey of a North African family. And we see that not only is the children changed, By the way, historical tradition tells us that Simon became a church leader in Northern Africa, but even the unnamed woman, their mother, who's not even there, is impacted by the cross of Christ. The journey of Jesus was no doubt painful, but it had a purpose. This family was not simply a passerby. This was not actually by happenstance that this family happened to be coming across Jesus' crucifixion. The Romans thought that they had compelled Simon and sons, but it was Christ himself who, before the foundation of the world, decided this to be, who wrote the script that the Romans were simply following. The Romans, it had already been written that not only would they crucify Jesus, but that they would compel these men they would compel these men to pick up a cross. Because Jesus' painful journey to Golgotha, and we see this, what we see is that this journey has a loving purpose. Right? To do what God does, that is to save sinners. And he had a purpose for this family. 
And it was beyond simply being a blessing to Paul and to the church. The purpose for this family was to change them by saving them. And by the way, again, it's no accident that these paths crossed. God, I love that God even uses the unbelieving Romans to lead people to himself. And I want to encourage you with this, that your journey is no different. It was not happenstance that you responded to the gospel. It was not happenstance that your life's journey crossed Christ crucified. It was not because a preacher compelled you. It was not because an evangelist convinced you. It's because Christ pursued you. You whom he chose and you who he had a plan for for the beginning of time. And I pray that it is truly a comfort to you that God alone pursued you And in such a painful journey, Christ was fixed on the Father's will, was fixed on the plan to display his loving grace to all who are his. And in love, Jesus walked a journey that we could not begin to to bear. And of course, this painful journey made in love ends as he reaches the top to be hung and humiliated, which is our second point, humiliation. Let's look at verses 23 through 26. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. It appears... Some sought to ease Jesus' pain by offering him some sort of natural narcotic, which he denies so he could fully experience the law's punishment for the sins of the world. And as Christ is beaten, as nails are driven into his hands and feet, if you don't know anything about crucifixion, he's slowly suffocating, and as he tries to relieve his suffocation, he has to pull down and push on his wounds to get a breath. Crucifixion was the last around about three days before at the end when they would come and break your legs and then you would just hang slowly, suffocating. A slow and painful death. Now Mark doesn't go into the gory details, but look what he does paint for us, right? That they're ripping off his clothes exposing his his beaten and naked body. It's all all jokes for the Romans and the Pharisees. They got a sign, king of the Jews. They have a crown fastened on his head. All of this was meant to mock him. Look at this king. This king of the Jews. It was meant to embarrass. Look at verse 27. It says, And with him they crucified two robbers and on his right and one on his left. 
a few details here I'd like to mention about this because this is somewhat fascinating. I want you to remember who was supposed to die on that cross. If you remember, it wasn't Jesus. It was Barabbas. If you remember, he was called a thief and an insurrectionist. The term insurrectionist is the same term, in fact, used um, to describe uh, the thieves. It's actually, a better word for it is a bandit, that these three men were bandits. Now, as you know, Jesus took the place of Barabbas, but what we see is there's two bandits on either side associated with Barabbas. And here, put it on his left and his right, positions of authority. If you remember, when his disciples say, hey, we want to sit at your left and right hand, Jesus says, what? You have no clue what you're asking. The entire picture is meant to humiliate Christ. Everything, even the fact that he has on his left and right two bandits. Here's your king, Jews. And this is what happens to those who follow him. This is what happens to those who oppose us. All of it is meant to make fun of Christ. Look at verse 29 through 31. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked to one another saying, he saved others and he can't even save himself. Jesus Christ, who holds all things together, who gave himself up to die, has been ridiculed and humiliated. I think he could easily come down and destroy them with, with, without even a thought. Destroy them with a word. Just obliterate them. If he wanted to make a show of it, he could have his angels come out of heaven and just... Destroy all of those who mock him. Psalm 12 says that he could could cut off their lips and cut off their tongue for those who mock him. But he doesn't. He lets it happen. Their scorn was meant to happen. Just like it was the Lord's plan that they would cross Simon and his children, just that it was his plan that he would be humiliated in such a way. It was part of the suffering. It was part of the journey. Look at these insults. You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Right? He saved others. He cannot save himself. The verbal assault echoes the temptation given to Jesus in the wilderness. A mockery that fed off the anxiety that we saw Jesus have in the garden, knowing the task at hand that he was going to be crushed by the Father. What we see here is a desperate attempt by the evil one trying to thwart the eternal plan of God. Look, in fact, you, you, you won't see it behind you, but I wanted you to take note that the mockery is part of the plan. Psalm 22, 7 through 8. 
This, this is what is a prophetic psalm of what's going to happen to the Messiah. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him, they say. Let him deliver him since he delights in him, they say. All of it. Humiliation. Part of the suffering that he was to endure. And I can't help, I can't help but to think of those who were present at the crucifixion. Specifically, his mother Mary, sweet Mary. Watched as her king, but also her son, whom she raised. She birthed, was mocked and humiliated, was slowly suffering. But can you imagine? Can you imagine? Given what she knows about Christ, can you imagine watching this on display, your child being massacred slowly? Not just that, but then people laughing at it. Having fun with it. Oh, I can imagine as a parent the panic in my soul that would just be overwhelming, praying between the tears God, do something. Please do something. Oh, Mary. Jesus was doing something, wasn't he? Something greater than she could ever, ever imagine. Something greater than we can even comprehend. He was being stripped so that we could be clothed in righteousness. Being killed so that we could live. The gospel writers portray beaten, naked Christ so that we may know the wealth gained for his obedience. The plan that was told long ago, he was enduring it. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to the death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And this is why he did it. So he could bore our sins. The pain of the humiliation was great, but the humiliation, though painful, was met by an everlasting love was joyfully sought to endure all things for his children. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. It's actually the second part of verse 2. It says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Listen to that again. The joy that was set before him. What joy was there in the cross? What joy could be set before him in the midst of such physical and emotional torment? 
of the joy set before him would be seen in the glory that he would bring the Father. The joy set before him would be in accomplishing redemption for those who were enslaved by sin. The joy that was before him would be bringing forgiveness to those who were guilty and establishing a kingdom of priests. The joy before him was fulfilling the Father's will by dying and securing you. Let that sink in. With the ease in which we sin and with the ease in which we get distracted from the will of our Lord, let that sink in. Let it be that our lives desire to exalt the name of Christ in His work rather than bring shame and mock the family that we've been adopted into. And let it be our mission that our lives are marked by holiness and desire to be devout and a desire to minimize anything that makes a mockery of what was purchased on that day. The final point is the cross. It says, let the Christ, the King of Israel, Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It's interesting. Um, crucifixion was seen as such a vile thing. It was, um, it was considered by, by many Romans, elite Romans, as almost like a uh, derogatory term. Um, and so some asked that it be removed from common language. Uh, Cicero, um, he has an interesting quote, he says, The very word cross should be far removed from the thoughts of a Roman citizen, but also the eyes, his ears, for the mention of them is unworthy of a Roman citizen. Unworthy of a Roman citizen. Yet the Lord himself kissed that which was unworthy for them, so that we may live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, as we look at the details of the crucifixion, what I'm always kind of stunned by is the details in some areas, but the lacking of details in others, especially um, that so much of the gore is left out of the writing of the gospel. We, we know what happens, right? We know that he was beaten and he was, uh, you know, we know about the thorns, we know about many of these things, but details of the macabre details are really, you don't see them. They're gone. What we kind of know as far as what he looked like after the fact is actually given to us by uh, Isaiah 52 in the Old Testament, a prophetic text that reads this, Isaiah 52, 14. It says, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So what we know is that he looked so disfigured, he barely looked human. I think the reason why so much of the details that, uh, that movies like The Passion uh, put in, uh, the reason I think the gospel writer leaves them out, is not so we're fixed on 
what type of beating that Jesus took, but rather what matters on what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And what I love to remember about this, as they're, as they're mocking him and telling him to come down from the cross, uh, is what on earth keeps Jesus there? It wasn't the Romans who kept Jesus on the cross. It wasn't the nails that kept Christ on the cross. It wasn't the Pharisees that kept him on the cross. What held Jesus tightly fastened to the cross was love. Christ took those nails so that you and I could be held closely to him for all eternity. And what we see in verse 32, these two being executed, right? We see them reviling Jesus in their death. But then something interesting happens. After, Mark doesn't give detail of it, but after Jesus tells, prays up to the Father and says, Lord, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, one of the bandits, his heart changes. He begins to defend Jesus. He begins to align himself with Christ. What we see in Luke 23, 42 through 43, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. A man who was once reviling Jesus, is now praising Christ. A man who was an enemy of God is now made a friend. This story should sound awfully familiar to you. But what I love about this little detail is that both of these men are guilty of the same crime. They're experiencing the same death. And this thief, he can do nothing to help Jesus. He can't do anything for Jesus. Right? He, can't, he can't go to church. He can't serve. He can't give in the offering. He can do nothing. He is absolutely helpless. And he's a beautiful picture of what salvation looks like. A bandit. A rebel. Who mocks God. Who's transformed and changed. Now begging and clinging to Christ as his only hope. And by the way, it was no accident that he was here. Just like God had foreordained to meet Simon and children, it's foreordained that this man would be beside him. We are very similar to him, right? And our lostness is good as dead, helpless, as helpless as this bandit, unable to do anything to earn any sort of salvation or merit with the Lord. Just like he's guilty, we're guilty. And what separates him from the other bandit 
that's still reviling Jesus is that our brother has been shown grace and been given faith. And it has brought him to a humble place to where all his only request is simply this. Remember me in heaven. Just, Jesus, if you could just remember me. Because this nobody thief recognized that all, of, that all the religious people today failed to do, that he was helpless, that he's a sinner, and without Christ, there's no chance at entering into the kingdom of heaven. The man had nothing to offer Jesus. But just like what we saw in the past, the Lord is doing what he loves to do, which is saving sinners. Our Lord, who is rich in mercy and in grace, bends it to this child whom he loves, and like Jacob and Esau, this man had done nothing good or bad to earn him merit with Jesus. His unbelief was met by grace. And what sprang from that interaction was a faith that allowed him to worship Christ. That took this executed bandit and made him into an heir of promise. Church, what are we but rebels of God's kingdom? Shown grace so that we may rejoice in the goodness of our Lord. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.